Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, and now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Brethren in Christ, Laudato Jesus Christus. In eternum. Welcome to The Meaning of Catholic. I'm Timothy S. Flanders. I'm joined by The Meaning of Catholic contributor, Kennedy Hall. Kennedy, how you doing, brother? I'm good. Uh, we're doing this stuff at like farmer's hours right now, four in the morning. Yes, indeed. That's why we both got our coffee and not our pipes. Yes. Last, last time last time we, we recorded, you, you, you smoked your pipe and we recorded that at like 10 p.m., but then we premiered it at 10 a.m. and people were saying, yeah. well, What's that? What you got drinking? Well, <laughs> smoking listen, your man, pipe, there, there is a, a blend that you can get called morning. Oh, really? I, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't smoke the tobacco very often, so I'd, I wouldn't actually. I, I didn't. I didn't used to, but then uh, actually last year when I was doing the, uh, like my buddy and I got into Father Ripperger. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's, just, yeah, he's like, got. Doesn't he have a long Gandalf pipe? I think I've seen it. It's called the church warden church warden oh that's so that's a great name for it so in the uh there's different styles of pipes where you basically could be smoking constantly but the smoke wouldn't cover your vision okay so the church warden literally in places like ireland england whatever <clears throat> especially where there was persecution of, of catholics there would be a warden who would basically guard the church at night so he would basically stand outside and in order to stay awake you need a stimulant so he'd smoke his pipe. Anyway, so he had really long stems, so he could hold it over here, and the smoke would come up here rather than in front of his face. That's a church warden. That's excellent. Yeah, <laughs> pretty cool. Very so excellent. So pipes are Catholic. Uh, that's great. Cool. Well, yeah. well, today's topic is Catholic masculinity, effeminacy, popular culture, music, etc. We'll just kind of see what we get into. But first, Kennedy, in fact, has completed a book, which is... Uh, going for publication and sometime soon, we hope. So tell us about your book, Kennedy. Okay. So the working title of the book uh, is called A Different Sort of Man. Anyway, I don't know where I heard it. I think it was in a sermon where the priest was basically saying, we don't just need men, we need a different sort of man. You know, we got to sort of change what we think of. He was talking about going back to what man, men used to be, but for today's standards, it'd be like a different type of man, you know? Anyway, <clears throat> so I was thinking, um, I have this book beside my bed, in my bedside table, and it's called a DIY Bible. Uh, it's just like do-it-yourself stuff. When I used to be a junk removal guy in university, I picked it up, someone was throwing it out. It's like that thick. And, uh, but in it, I was reading through it the other day because trying to fix some stuff around the house. It's basically like what YouTube is now, but in a book, you know, for fixing things. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, but you can fix like 95, if you have the tools, you can fix 95% of the things in your house. If you use this book and I thought, man, that's just like the spiritual life. If you have the tools and we do rosary sacraments, sacramentals, I mean, you can get a pretty good toolkit as a Catholic. Um, you can really take care of about 95% of the stuff you need to for your family, for your, as a man, as a father, as a husband. And, uh, <clears throat> we've sort of lost the traditional rhythms and habits of as Catholics. So, so many of us today, we're trying to like recapture this almost lost inheritance, you know? So, you know, you go to this blog, you go to that blog, whatever, 
you check out this podcast, whatever, and you get little pieces, um, you know, and like one podcast is on spiritual warfare or one, whatever. And one is on, you know, virtue, whatever. You just need a manual. You just need a book to take care of 95% of those problems. That was my idea. So I just sort of thought, okay, I'm going to put together something and uh, it's going to have most of the stuff you'll need. I mean, the odd thing, maybe you consult a priest, I guess, if it's like a big deal, but you should be able to take care of most of the things you have to, if you have the right tools. So I basically just, uh, there's 10 chapters in it. Um, just in case I forget, I won't go through all of them, but you know, topics like who is the devil? Why does that matter? Um, what does it mean? What does a feminacy mean? You know, how do you mortify yourself, tame your body, that kind of stuff? Um, how do you live in a pagan culture such as ours? How do you protect your family from all that stuff? Cause it's everywhere. Um, uh, one chapter is on pornography cause that's like a plague. Um, another chapter is on, uh, media. How do you use the media? Uh, how do you build a domestic church? Um, how do you pray? And, uh, one is on crusades cause the crusades are the manliest thing ever. And then the last, <laughs> and the last chapter is on the blessed mother. Because, uh, you know, you need to give to save the best for last, as they say. Um, part of it's autobiographical. It's a lot of stuff that I've learned. Um, there's some personal stuff in there. And uh goes more into detail of, like, my conversion, I guess. And uh, it was good. You ever listen to that talk by Father Ripperger, um, How to Raise a Man? Uh, twice, I think. It, yeah. yeah it's, tw- twice it's... this morning. Prepare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that is, yeah, one of the... I mean, probably one of my favorite talks by Ripperger, probably. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And 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 in it, like the thing about Ripperger, right, is he uh he uh, actually funny story about Ripperger. So anyway, I go to the society chapel and um one of the ladies that uh <clears throat> her two of her sons actually were in the seminary. One of the one was in the Benedictine monastery down south in uh, Arizona or something like that. Anyway, but they just came back, they didn't go through with the priesthood. But uh, she was telling us a story that at the seminary, like people forget that seminarians are like regular people. So yes, they're living a very prayerful, holy life, but they still make impressions and have jokes and all that kind of stuff. Right. So in the seminary, the celebrities that they impersonate and have a laugh about it are internet priests. So she was saying like the boys will tell her they'll have a conversation between Father Ripperger and Father Isaac Mary Relier. Oh boy! Like, so it's like, <laughs> so that's anyway, a good. That really that's cool. a good duo there. <laughs> yeah. So there's yeah, it was good. So, uh, but in his talk, you know, Father Ebergur, like he says, fifty-seven things in one sentence, and all and none of them are wasted words somehow. So, I thought, okay, this hour and twenty-minute talk or so, he touches on so many things. And I, and it was another thing too. I thought, what if we could just like tease out, you know, how to do that a little bit more in depth and then just, you know, have a resource for that. So that was part of the inspiration as well. But anyway. yeah, I, I, I love what you're saying. Cause it, it really is true that like I was, when I was talking to Taylor Marshall last week, we were talking about how just doctrinally pretty much. 90, 95% of the doctrinal controversies that exist today have already been settled like 50 right. plus years ago. And this stuff is yeah. just not, it's, it shouldn't even be a controversy, but it is. Um, right. And 
and then and like what you're saying in the spiritual life probably even more than 95 percent. probably i mean just because the more complex stuff is so rare that we're just trying to deal with the basics and so much of the basics have already when we worked out all this stuff and and so and then that that just simplifies things a lot because a lot of souls are struggling with confusion and that's why like at the meaning of catholic we just want to point you to the right sources just check out yeah. the resources here's all the basics you just read this you'll get 95 percent of all this confusion will just disappear because you just get right. the basics um and it's also true because there's so few priests one there's few priests who are orthodox who you can tr- rely on for the spiritual life or the doctrine or the morals also even among the orthodox priests there's so few of them that have time to give you spiritual direction so we're just left with very few priests you can even have that time of day with and it is comforting to know that like you said 95 percent of this is really worked out to a great extent so and there's a great tradition of manualism in the west where there is a systematization systematizing of these basics a b c d e f g yeah. So that everybody can, can so it could be mass produced and everybody can replicate 95% of this. Yeah. I like, for example, in my, my wife and I, like when we came to the faith about five years ago, um, you know, we were coming from a very secular background and five, six years ago, whenever it was. And um, at that time, you know, if you start taking the faith seriously, um, the devil gets really mad. And he retaliates and certain things were happening in our home and whatever. And it was, that's another podcast. It's pretty cool though. And in a morbid kind of demonic way, but anyway, um, we had to consult a priest to get something sorted out. Like, you know, you had to get her house exercised and all that kind of stuff, you know, but then after that happened, um, I'm not being presumptuous here. I don't obviously things will happen in life and will be tested, but as far as the day to day, stuff goes as a dad, as a father, as a husband, taking care of the house. As long as I'm just like rosary, you know, uh, fasting a little bit here and there, um, reading the Bible, saying morning offering, saying some like uh, spiritual protection prayers over my kids and my wife before bed, like just those little things. Like we're talking 27 minutes of effort, you know, which is the minute we should do more, but even just that. And it just, it's, uh, you know, plus some blessed candles and whatever, and your house is, is, is in a much better situation than it was. Oh, yeah. That's, you that's know? what I've been trying to emphasize in my daily videos on the channel as we approach Septuagesima, February yes. 9, um, that we start to really build, because the, the biggest thing, a wise man once told me that when you want to build a spiritual life, you have to go very slow. You have to just add one small thing and just do that for a long period of time until that's just a total habit. You just do it without thinking. And then you start doing another thing because the devil is going to try to guilt you into just starting doing this hour long prayer rule per day. And then you stop after three days and that's how, that's how he tricks you. And so getting that discipline step by step is so crucial. So, so let me ask you this, um, Kennedy, can you boil down Catholic masculinity into a few sentences? Give, give us an yeah. essence. Sure. And I think that uh, first we should define, it's kind of like when Aquinas will, he will define what God is not. 
you know, you to help you understand who he is. Yeah. So if we should look at effeminacy real quick. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I know you're better at Greek than I am, but uh, I know that the word in, in Greek for effeminacy is something like malakoi or something like that. And it basically just means softness. Okay. So if you're to be effeminate means to be soft. Um, it doesn't mean to be tender, right? That's uh, I don't know why effeminacy and the word femininity have a linguistic connection. I think from what I've looked into the Latin etymology of it, I think it's because that sort of F-E-M, that femen sort of thing, I think that has to do with like uh, softness or tenderness in general. But in the proper context for women, it's obviously a perfection. Um, but when it's privated or perverted and applied in the wrong way to a man, it's, it's an imperfection, right? It's mm -hmm. a vice. <clears throat> so effeminacy just means softness. Um, it means uh, essentially the unwillingness to go through hard things, the unwillingness to go through things that are painful uh, in pursuit of the good, right? So Catholic masculinity is not that. <laughs> it's the opposite of that. So essentially, Catholic masculinity um, is uh, a combination of having a physical fortitude and a spiritual fortitude, okay? So this is why our church has always had the... Um, You just pause there. Let's see. I don't know if we can get you back. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Let's see. Oh, okay. Anyways, so you said um, that's why our church, you were talking about spiritual fortitude. Oh, right. Physical so fortitude. Go ahead. Right. Our church has always given us the rhythms of fasting mm -hmm. in our life, like fasting and feasting. <clears throat> um, uh, because, you know, like the, the Catholic man is to be like a warrior. And just like warriors, you know, you have to have a time of austerity and you have to have a time of recreation. Okay. Um, so masculinity is not necessarily stoicism, right? It's not like this constant Marcus Aurelius sort of denying your things, which there's a benefit to that, but it's not that. But it's also not being an Epicurean where you sort of just feed your pleasures, I guess. And you see those two extremes in today's culture, uh, which makes sense because the church has been lost. But I guess that's more than a few sentences. But basically, Catholic masculinity is a willingness to suffer. Essentially, it's a willingness to be crucified. So it's basically just being a Christian and being a man, you know, in the fullest sense. Yeah, I, I, never, I never thought of the, I never thought to look further into the uh, etymology, etymological uh, connection between effeminacy and femininity, but yeah, we're trying right. to distinguish femininity as a perfection. It is a gift yeah. given to woman nature that right. they have. That's a good thing. Um, yeah. But it is in Latin. It is entirely different. Um, yeah. Because it's melas in Latin, which mm -hmm. has three meanings, <clears throat> and. So one is softness, one is effeminacy, yep. and the last one is the solitary sin. Yeah, that's the third definition, and that's a really key point because that is extremely connected to the other two. Um, so yeah, we're so effeminacy. Yeah, Saint, Saint Thomas breaks it down as the the unwillingness to suffer because of an attachment to pleasure. Right. And in exactly. yesterday's show, we contrasted that with the virtue of eutropelia, which is right Proper recreation. recreation. So yeah. Um, like you, like you just broke down so well there, it's not stoicism because we do need recreation. We need to, 
um, our concupiscible appetite, which has pleasure. We need to give our concupiscible appetite pleasure so that our Mm. soul may rest in a moderate sense. So we need to have recreation. And so it's important that we do that. And we give our concupiscible appetite pleasure. Um, We don't deprive it completely of pleasure, but we also moderate that by fasting. Um, And so, yeah, it's all about St. Thomas. The general rule for St. Thomas is um, a moderation between two extremes, like you were just saying. Um, There's, it's not too, it's not, a virtue is the mean between mm-hmm. uh, excess and defect. So an excess right. of pleasure is the Epicurean who's just a hedonist. He's just feeding his pleasure all the time. And the defect right. is the Stoic who's just never takes in any pleasure at all. He just thinks pleasure itself is wrong, which is also yeah. an extreme. Yeah. Well, that's like um, it's the Aristotelian idea of the golden mean. So if something's not intrinsically evil, right? So obviously pleasure is not intrinsically evil and austerity, stoicism is not intrinsically evil. In fact, they're, they're goods in and of themselves if you use them properly. So you find the balance between two goods because Chesterton said, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to paraphrase, but he said, uh, a vice is actually just an exaltation of one virtue over all the others. Wow, right. So it's like, good. Well, because we see today, yeah. right? Like, for example, like, mercy is amazing. But mercy without justice exalted above it ceases to actually be mercy because you can't apply mercy unless there's justice, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, <clears throat> so recreation is good. Austerity is good. Find the golden mean between those two. And this is why Christ always, one of the reasons he always uses agricultural and hor- uh, horticultural analogies. So we think about, uh, you know, like having a vineyard and you have to prune certain things off of it. You have to prune away dead branches, which is the austerity. But you also have to give the plants. You also have to give the, the crops uh, water. You have to give them sun. You have to leave them alone and give them rest. And only when you have the certain balance between those two, then you get like the fullest, uh, most vibrant, most sugar-filled vi- you know, like vi- uh, crop with the most vitality, right? So the human life has to be sort of cultivated like that, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, so this <clears throat> this becomes the framework that we can then judge our interactions with the popular culture. Right. Um, so, Kennedy, what uh, what do you do to recreate yourself? What's your favorite recreation? Uh, working out. I like to work out. Um, I grew up playing football, and I still play some rugby. So just, you know, lifting weights and stuff is fun for me. Um, in the summers, uh, if I'm lucky, uh, I get to play some rugby, which is a lot of fun. Um, but also, uh, it's, I really love to have a lot of social time with friends and family, especially on Sundays. And, uh, you know, we go to mass and then we spend hours, you know, with our friends, with kids, kids run around and act like little lunatics. And, uh, we sit there and, you know, not in the exodus, not having a beer right now, but, but, uh, we sit around, have a beer, whatever wax philosophically, uh, you know, just good things like that. Yeah. We also like to, to, uh, our family favorite show is little house on the prairie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a show that we can like watch with all the ages. And then you know, nothing wacky comes up, whatever. Right. Um, and uh, I don't know. It's fun. So we're just watching nice, good shows and movies that we've 
deemed okay. Uh, spending time with friends and family as much as possible. And then uh, having some physical recreation. That's my main thing. Right on, brother. Yeah. What about you? I did, I did, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know they played rugby in Canada. That was, I guess that's... Dude, like, we're British, man. <laughs> it's a, okay, it's a British culture thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, rugby is great. Um, I, I like uh, novels um, in terms of yeah. my personal... I, I haven't had time to work out since I've been working extra jobs, which has been unfortunate, but, um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, just playing with my kids, running around with my kids. Uh, yeah. yeah. Great, great yeah. times. Um, we watched a lot of Christmas movies during the Christmas season. Yeah. yeah um, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so the, somebody, <laughs> one of the patrons asked about star Wars and I realized I have a star Wars mug here. So okay. I, <clears throat> We talk, I talked about movies yesterday, and honestly, I have mixed feelings about Star Wars now. I mean, I think when I was growing up and I didn't know more about this, that, you know, it was all fun. And I think Star Wars has a great good versus evil struggle. Um, yeah. So I think it has a great, has a ton of great spiritual truths in Star Wars, which mm-hmm. one of the things that, like yesterday, I talked about the the Hollywood code that the Catholic church imposed on Hollywood during the thirties to sixties. And one of the, one of the things that besides just sort of modesty, profanity and things of that nature was um, a sort of a glorification of evil in the sense that you see this in, in various action movies and whatnot you see where, where the, 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 the character who basically just takes vengeance and kills people is cool. Right. And, you know, this guy is just this vicious murderer. And, mm-hmm. you know, if that person were real, if there was a real person like that, you know, we would, the whole culture would shun this person and lock him up for the rest of his days or execute him. Right. But in the movies, he's sort of this cool guy. And yeah. the code actually attacked those types of things because what that's doing is it's taking, it's provoking your concupiscible appetite to take pleasure right. in this great evil. And, right. and just sort of glorify this guy as some, some cool guy who just kills people. And I do like how Star Wars creates this character of Darth Vader, who's just mm-hmm. this pure evil. And then in the prequels, he's revealed as just this weakling. That's not like he's not right. actually a cool, this cool murderer guy, you know. Right. He's yeah. just a weak kid. And that's that's more real. That's more the reality of what evil really is. It's not this cool thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so just some of the immodesty later on, uh, well, return of the Jedi, but, um, in the most recent movie, they had a homosexual kiss. So I, I see them drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, it's still mostly PG, which is nice, but yeah, I, I've pretty much, I, and they, I did see on LifeSite that they added homosexual characters to the Star Wars cartoon. So okay. that's when you're completely drawn. That's when it's, I'm done, basically. So I've been pretty much disillusioned with Star Wars, but although I see some good in it, but what do you think? Well, I mean, <clears throat> there's kind of two ways that I find that Christians tend to look at like fiction. On the one hand, you have sort of the, uh, <clears throat> and not the Puritan, because it's not just Puritanical, but this idea that if it doesn't have uh, an objective Christian meaning, then it's not basically worthy of spending your time doing. 
I don't agree with that standpoint, although I understand it and I know why parents do it. Um, and then there's sort of, and I'm talking here about two legitimate perspectives, not just like willy nilly stuff, right? The other one I find is more of a, I think a classical Catholic outlook on fiction in general, because the Catholic church, um, obviously with great caution has always looked at, um, the great works of literature of the mythological times before Christ and looked at them as they are as pieces of sort of Chesterton calls mythology, the highest extent of the human imagination. So if the human imagination like that of, let's say some generally moral Greeks in a culture like that, you get some pretty profound stuff like the Iliad, et cetera. Right. Or, you know, you have a pretty degenerate culture like that of the Carthaginians during the Punic Wars or before the Punic Wars and Rome and things, and you get some pretty messed up stuff, right? So <clears throat> I look at something like Star Wars and I say it's base. I mean, it's basically mythology. And I think that uh, whatever, what's his name? Jackson or not Jackson? Is it Jackson who wrote it? Or no, it George Peter Lucas. Jackson? George Lucas. No. I think that um, he alluded to that he sort of took a... Uh, he, he melded sort of a Buddhist and a Christian undertone to it. I think he said that, um, which makes sense because the force, it's kind of like the matrix, which is very Christian in some ways. Yeah. Um, but, but the force is sort of indifferent. It's sort of, uh, it's good or evil depending how you use it. Right. Which in our Christian life, technically speaking, like there's objective evil that can't be sanctified and there's objective good that is fixed that way as well. But nonetheless, there is, um, it's a classic thing. It's a classic tale of uh, like man going through life and being presented with tools that he can use for good or evil and he has to find his way. I think the general theme of Star Wars is fine. But you know that uh, parable of the scorpion and the, and the frog? Have you heard that one? Is that one where the, wait, with a frog? Um, that's or the, the turtle, one. whatever. Well, is that the one where he's, he's, uh, he says, take me across the river? Yes. But don't sting me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you should and tell anyway, the whole parable though. Okay. So, so, okay. So basically a scorpion has to get across a pond and he can't swim. <clears throat> so he consults, I think it's a frog or a turtle. We'll say frog. So he consults the frog and he says, listen, let me go on your back and you can bring me across. And he says, well, I'm not going to do that because you're going to sting me. And basically the scorpion appeals to self-serving nature and says, listen, I know I'm a scorpion, but I need to get across too. So you scratch my back. I won't sting yours. Right. So, um, he says, okay, okay, okay. Anyway, halfway across the water, the frog starts feeling the burning sensation of the stings coming in. And he goes, what are you doing? And basically the scorpion says, I'm sorry, I'm a scorpion. I can't help myself. So Hollywood is a scorpion. Uh, I mean, in, in the way it is now. Uh, if Hollywood's going to take a good story and I throw on whatever politically correct thing has to make it viable for today's marketing, they're a scorpion. They can't act otherwise, you know? So I wouldn't say Taylor Marshall did that, uh, Jade of a contest thing where he says like, I don't recognize any star Wars before 1983 or whatever. I mean, that's fine. I mean, you could, it's like, uh, I like Batman. I really like the dark Knight. I think that's like my favorite movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but actually now that I think about it, I think that movie would fit within a, a like, there's no immodesty in it really. There's nothing like that. It's, but anyway, I love that movie, but uh, some of the Batmans in between, like uh, the ones with Arnold Schwarzenegger and stuff, like they were just ridiculous. Like that's a piece of garbage. It should be thrown out forever, you know? Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, 
what you're saying is really good because there, I think there is a, <clears throat> there's definitely a, um, a v- revering of great literature from the yeah. Greeks. Yeah. Um, like the Greek tragedies and obviously Homer. And yeah. I think what makes them, what I would distinguish between a story that is a, a story that, even if it's a fantastic story with magic and that type of thing, if yep. it has the reality of humanity in it, which, and what yep. I mean by that is your actions have consequences. Yeah. That's, and that's all I'm asking for <laughs> basically. Right. Cause what, what I don't like is, and what, what I think the code gets at is like the show friends. Yeah. <laughs> the show friends, they all just, joke around and sleep together and there's no consequences that's not real life you know if that was happening in real life they'd all be broken people with terrible Mm -hmm. emotional problems and all this stuff wouldn't be fun and games that's that's reality so that creating this sort of fantasy world where the movie or the tv show just sort of just gives us this concupiscible appetite pleasure in a fantasy where there's no consequences and then we start to think that way because I, I think the other aspect is that the power of TV and movies is so powerful. The images, because images yep. are so powerful. That's why the rosary is so mm. powerful because we're, we're, yep. ima- we're putting the images in our brains. When we put right. these images in our brains and we connect the cause and effect and we say, wow, when that person did that mortal sin in the, in the TV, he got a positive effect. So then we, right. we actually start to believe this and it's a complete yep. lie, obviously, because when you do those yeah. mortal sins, you get the opposite effect just on a yeah. very natural level, not putting aside mm-hmm. the spiritual aspect. Um, so I think that that's, you know, uh, Oedipus, the king, you know, Oedipus marries his go. mother and he kills himself. Spoiler alert. You know, <laughs> I mean, this is, <laughs> this is the reality of, of this situation, you know, uh, it's not, uh, it's just, it's not a bunch of like, uh, what's the, you know, I can't remember the play. I was just, E. Michael Jones was mentioning it. It's the, it's the one where Bacchus gets unleashed oh. on the women yeah. and, yeah. and the king of Thebes tries to, uh, put it down, but then Bacchus tricks him into his concupiscible appetite, but then he, he ends up getting killed yeah. by it. And so it's, it's sort of. Even in this pagan culture where they are worshiping these demon gods, which just cause them to uh, cause them to do this debauchery. It's, it's remarkable that the Greek could even see in these tragedies, they could even see the, the reality of this debauchery yeah. and what actually happens that this yeah. debauchery ends in death. And so that's, those are the types of things that makes, in my opinion, what makes them great is that reality. Yeah, it's true. Like, and I was, I'm just reading a book right now called, um, it's really good, actually. We should put in the links. It's called Saints in the World, written by a priest in the 1950s. But I'm reading it right now. It's just fire. Like, that's the one I sent you the picture of yesterday of, uh, mm. of uh, anyway, it's just so good about being a man. Anyway, um, but the idea of the book, a lot of it is, listen, you've got your theological virtues, but you still have your four cardinal virtues. And those are human virtues. Like, there's a reason the church does not say that you have to have, I mean, supernatural grace exalts and purifies those virtues, but they're not called supernatural virtues for a reason. They're part of like the natural law part of who we are. 
So you have your fortitude, your temperance, etc. Um, <clears throat> and in a story that has uh, uh, sort of a back and forth, a fight within the framework of those cardinal human virtues, there's a whole lot you can pull out of there, right? And uh, just a side note, though, remember uh, you were talking about friends. So I always, when my students will ask me, uh, like about TV and stuff, and I remember one time I was actually doing a talk for like this youth event uh, at a community center thing or whatever, or a church hall. And I said, guys, you got to think about the type of men that you're presented in Friends. And they all got excited, like, oh, I love Friends. It's the best. <laughs> and I said, listen, Joey Tribbiani, if you met that guy in real life, like he's, he's slept with like a thousand women. Uh, he's got no job. Um, he sleeps till noon most days. First of all, he'd be extremely obese because he eats like a thousand pieces of pizza a day and whatever. <clears throat> he's basically an alcoholic uh, and he's got a severe pornography addiction. Like he would be the grossest man you've ever met in your life. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know? And like Ross, I mean, the guy cheats on his girlfriend. Uh, it takes him, I don't know, whatever. I watched a show growing up, you know, uh, takes him uh, years and years and years to finally marry the woman who had his child. Um, he has a child that he never sees. Like you never see him with his one son, you know, and then Chandler is like the weakest, like once again, huge pornography addiction. They're always joking about that. Um, and you know, he's total, just like a soy boy. Like he just never takes, I mean, these three men in this show, which is probably arguably the most popular show of basically the nineties and early two thousands presents the worst and most just despicable aspects of effeminacy that you could ever imagine. Anyway, so that's just really important yeah. to keep in mind. I, I yeah. think that's that's the great point that you're making about literature, and that that was what was made by our Catholic school to me that I didn't realize was that's what great literature does. It is it is it teaches the virtues and the vices. Yes. Without it teaches them to children without the children having to go through a ton of experiences to learn those things. When they read right. the Iliad, they can learn about justice, fortitude, and also vengeance and things of the, that yeah. more vice characteristics too. And they right. can take them out of these stories. And that's why I thought those cardinal virtues, because those are going to be everywhere in good literature, whether it's Christian or not. And right. so, yeah, that's great. Um, but so effeminacy, I think, you know, if you're effeminate, you're going to be, and then this is what popular culture, popular, uh, you know, the conglomerates, the oligarchs or whatever, you know, yeah. large companies, they know that if they just create things that provoke our concupiscible appetites and cause us to be addicted to pleasure, they're going to make yeah. more money because right. you just get addicted to it and then you just feed off of it like a drug. And yeah. so, so that's where the effeminacy come in. So let's talk about um, music. Um, okay. I want to make sure. And we, we're also going to talk about Exodus 90 too. We got to remember to do that. I, I wanted to cover music, music, video games, social media. But in particular okay. music, I think. Um, so, well, let's just introduce Exodus 90 because part of Exodus 90 is music. Yeah. So right now you're doing Exodus 90. Can you take us through what are all the different areas of asceticism pillars okay yeah. so basically nexus 90 and if anyone wants to watch a full length in this check out taylor marshall's thing he did something with the founder that's like an hour on it in general really good um 
but anyway, you give up uh, sweets, you give up alcohol, you give up, uh, you start taking on more more regimented fasting, so you don't eat between meals, which seems like it might be diff- not that hard, uh, but then you don't realize that um, every once in a while, you just have a lot of little things between meals and it keeps you going, right? Um, and then uh, you give up watching television and movies and things, YouTube videos. You can make exceptions if you're a married man for family things. I mean, you can't tell your kids, like, we're not watching a movie for three months. It's like, well, no, that's what we do every Sunday night, dad. You know, like you gotta sort of figure that out for your family. Um, and you give up social media. I think that's the main things. Now you don't give up music, but you give up non sacred or non uh, uplifting music. So, uh, I guess you could listen, like basically it's supposed to be music that only lifts your soul to God. Um, so in my case, I mean, there's some, I don't know. I'm not really a praise and worship guy. I used to like it a little bit more, but I'm just, I like classical and things. So I'll just throw on some, uh, Palestrina or I like Tchaikovsky sort of like the uh, St. John Chrysostom liturgy. I really like that stuff. Um, and then even just good classical, I mean, Bach and Beethoven, I mean, they were writing for God. Um, so you can listen to that sort of thing. The reason though, that they have a big insistence on music. And I would actually argue that music is the most, and this is, you can find this in the literature of the philosophers um, I think Plato said that music is like the highest science or something like that. Um, and you can find this in, even in the early church, when they were trying to, when people were trying to spread heresies, they would basically make these heretical theological undertones and put them to popular bar songs, which is basically just like, <laughs> yeah, you know. Arius, Arius took bar songs that people, everybody yeah. talked and he put his heresy into this bar song. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this just sounds like, you know, whatever's on the radio today. Um, but music is huge because music is like the most active, internally active of the pleasures, like the sensory pleasures. Because when you're like, if you were to watch a video and there was no music to it, it would actually get boring pretty quickly. That's why uh, film scores are so important in Hollywood, right? Hans Zimmer and all those guys, they just make magnificent music. Otherwise the movie really isn't as good. Um, and, the reason is, is because from what I can understand is essentially music, it's a very human thing as well. It's distinctly human because animals can't recognize music because it takes a higher level of thinking uh, where you have to have a, a sophisticated pattern recognition, which is why we can have rhythm and things like that. Like you'll never see a dog, even though they have better hearing than us, technically speaking, you'll never see them move in a rhythmic fashion to the, the cadence of a beat because they can't. You won't even see a chimp do it or anything like that. Um, humans do that. So what happens when you listen to music is it actually affects the internal rhythms, sort of like the way that you operate and it brings your heart rate up, brings your heart rate down. It really affects your physical disposition. And because of that, it's sort of, uh, you know, you have your body and your soul. What's happening to your body is going to affect your soul and vice versa. Um, it has a great effect on how you're going to think about things like your quiet of mind, etc. Um, so music is huge and it's not just lyrics, right? Um, people think, okay, I can listen to uh, some rap or some heavy metal or something like that as long as it has Christian lyrics. The problem is, is that the music itself is designed to evoke in you a certain type of appetite. 
And you know, like everyone knows this. I always say to my students when they're asking, well, what about music? I'm like, listen, guys, I want you to think about a movie that you've watched, you know, an action movie, The Bourne Identity or something like that. Some, you know, some famous action movie. And think about what happens when the good guy walks into like a den of thieves or he goes and sees like the Russian mobsters. It's always going to be some very highly sexualized electronic music or it's going to be some very angry uh, sort of heavy metal guitar music. And you don't even have to hear the lyrics. As soon as you hear the type of music, it automatically, it automatically uh, uh, signals to you what level of morality is present there just by how it sounds, right? So, right. yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that, so, that, that is the, that's one of the key points here because the lyrics are so, I mean, I would say that they're very minor in terms of uh, almost secondary. The, the, the power of music for good or for evil. Um, right. I mean, and this is, this, this may seem controversial to you, but I, I just looked up this article from uh, Kwasniewski at one Peter yeah. five. He has a ton of great articles and we're going to link those. One thing he points out is um, the, he says, quote, that music has a profound effect on the formation and development of our human potentialities and moral character is the teaching of Plato, Aristotle, mm -hmm. Augustine, Aquinas, but also Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Pieper, mm -hmm. Ratzinger, Scruton, among many other heavyweights. And then he concludes, yeah. and surely when thinkers opposed on so much else agree on this major point, their agreement should give us pause. And yeah. that is a very, uh, yeah, I think Plato he said that music is the form of the soul. Music has direct access to the soul. Yeah. And it's really profound because I will link another talk again, Ripperger, yeah. when he discusses how there are, there are certain, I mean, music really engages our compupable appetite, our restful appetite and our mm -hmm. intellect and our right. will. Um, but yeah. different forms of music do it in different ways. They, they have different, stimulation towards different parts of you so right. um like heavy metal stimulates particularly your irascible appetite it's it yep. makes you very um not angry per se but just it just it stimulates that emotions those emotions within the irascible appetite whereas mm -hmm. um like popular dance music yep. particularly just just feeds that concupiscible appetite and so yeah um, whereas when you consider music before 1900, you have, yep. on the one hand, you have sacred music, which yep. sacred music, um, particularly stimulates your intellect yep. because of its complexity, um, as well as its, yep. uh, elevated, uh, tone, I would say just with the voices only. I think that, that mm -hmm. it just has an elevated tone, which mm -hmm. just causes an elevated interaction with the music, but it also does it does uh, include your concupiscible appetite you you get a pleasure out of beautiful yeah a good pleasure you know yeah and it, yeah. it's it's certainly a pleasure but it's 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 not the the effect that it has on you or you and your emotions is not an overwhelming pleasure in your concupiscible appetite it's it's right. much more in your intellect and then you have cl uh, classical music and the various forms of it which are mm -hmm very much still in the intellect, but there's a, a lot more in the concupiscible and irascible. Like, you know, I love yeah. Beethoven. Beethoven has a ton of yeah. irascible elements. Mm -hmm. 
And then you also have just popular folk music, which I would, you know, talk about like Irish ballads or like Americana, the old, old timey mm-hmm. type of, you know, which are just, mm-hmm. and I would, I would put those in more of the just sort of recreation category where, you know, we're yeah. just, we're sitting around a campfire, we're singing. And what's interesting about those songs is that they have, you know, 12 stanzas yes. and, you know, and they're just very repetitive. You know, you just tell a whole story that's like, you know, 12 stanzas and everybody knows it. And it's just something that we do together. That is a sort of a communal cultural aspect, communal cultural mm-hmm. activity, which has a, a great deal of concupiscible appetite, but it's not addictive. It's not overwhelming. It doesn't have a strong moral effect in terms of, uh, associating with any sort of bad morals. No. Um, but then when you get into, you get into the jazz era, this is where it really begins. And this is, this is, you know, people may find this controversial, but it's this type of music has an effect and there's, it's no coincidence that the, the, the music and the culture around surrounding the music, the swing culture is connected directly to a degradation of morals. And you can read about this. If you don't believe me, you can read the autobiography of Malcolm X, where he talks mm-hmm. about the swing culture. This is more in the forties, but he talks about the swing culture that he was a part of in his youth and how just debauchery, you know, it's just mm-hmm. it's so much debauchery in that. And that's because the music, that music and, and not in nowadays jazz is, I mean, I can appreciate jazz nowadays because we've, we've moved so far away because jazz was right. kind of like the gateway into the, mm-hmm. the forms that we have now, but um, because it still has a highly complex structure. Um, right. It's still intellectual. Yeah, especially the, uh, like the swing music in particular is a little far more uh, concupiscible than like the bebop or right. like Miles Davis type of stuff or like, uh, you know, that type of thing. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of complexity. So, I mean, I, I'm not saying jazz is wrong. I'm saying there's, there's a great deal of good and still a lot of good quality music, I think, in my opinion, in, in jazz music. But because of the way that, you know, when you introduce it into the culture in the way that it was introduced with the method and the manner of the concupiscible appetite, it right. goes right <laughs> along with that degradation of morals. <clears throat> and so that was really kind of just the beginning. And that's when, then we got into the, the rock music in the fifties and sixties and the seventies, I mean, eighties, and every, every generation just sort of introduces a new form of just <clears throat> such a strong, overwhelming, addictive, uh, yeah. quality to the music so that yeah. you get songs in your head. That's, yes. that's the, that's one of the big things you get songs in your head and, uh, and you get this addictive feeling out of it you want to go back to that pleasure and get that pleasure again out of listening to that music and uh so it just creates this this dependency it creates this effeminacy basically creates a a, a, this attachment to this concupiscible uh pleasure which is just weakening your weakening your soul basically so yeah go ahead well think about well (laughs) a couple things i don't want to forget here so think about just quickly about rock music think about the height of effeminate rock music it's like the hair metal of the 1980s right so literally men basically dressing like women but not pretending to be women but just dressing like women uh but at the same time they would do weird things like they wear like tight leather pants and tank tops but then they would put like stuffing in their crotch like it's just this weird it's just weird 
and and then have like long hair, eyeliner, like it's just whoa, talk about effeminate. Like you literally, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, <clears throat> and that was accompanied with think about the style of music like Iron Maiden and those sorts of things. I know guys love Iron Maiden. I used to listen to it in high school. But I mean, you've got uh the most sort of hardcore uh, and I'll talk about rhythm in a sec and why that matters, but sort of more hardcore background, but then the most uh, in, unmasculine sounding falsetto. And it's not like the falsetto of a kid. So there's something proper about listening to like a boys choir because it's an innocent falsetto. Like it's, it's, it's that's how their voice sounds because they're innocent, right? Um, whereas when a man does it, uh, unless it's in a certain way, it's like the whole time you're basically trying to have a high pitched female sounding voice. You're dressing basically like a woman, but you're pretending to be a macho man. It's just completely dis- It's just, just, just jointed. Right. So that brings me to though, there's a reason why jazz is like the gateway. There's like the classical jazz, which is very musical, but then there's sort of the freestyle jazz, which came out of the jazz culture. So there's basically two types of rhythm and I can't remember the name of the one, but there's like the classical rhythm which is uh it's the rhythm of a waltz so if you think of a waltz it's like one two three one two three that's the classical rhythm that's actually basically the beat of your heart okay so if you think of your heart it's like you know it just it pumps right and you, it's it when you're listening to it you have to listen hard for the second two beats they're there but the one every three of them is essentially the loudest one right and that's how it that's how it sounds um and then <clears throat> The opposite of that rhythm is called syncopetic rhythm, which essentially is like one, two, three, one, two, three. So um, what that does is it literally changes the way that your body is reacting to the stimulus and that your body has to adapt to the stimulus, which is why you basically get a sense of anxiety from it, right? This is why certain rhythms can just make you upset, right? So the thing about the, the freestyle jazz culture is that the classical stuff is uh, the tempos might be high, but it's basically um, it's based in the sort of classical rhythm, which is much like the waltz. Whereas the freestyle stuff, <clears throat> this is why it's so hard to follow freestyle jazz is because the, the sort of focal point beats are all over the place. Right. Um, and if you think about rappers like Eminem and stuff, uh, he's got the angriest sound. And even when I was a high school student, I could never really get into Eminem all the way because he was just too angry. But uh, he has this way of rapping and it's basically the main way now. So they actually rap in between the beats. So there's never a time when you're listening to the song where you can rest. So if you listen to the songs for so long, you actually basically get exhausted. It's a very strange phenomenon. Um, but you know who was the... Uh, uh, speaking of Star Wars, the major sort of, uh, what's the word? Revolutionizer, I guess. Revolutionary, that's the word. Of the syncopetic rhythm in major music was Wagner. And if you think about the entrance song for Darth Vader, it is one of the most evil songs you'll hear, but it's par excellence syncopetic rhythm. So think about it. It's, it's da, 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 da. So it's actually, it's like, it's exaggerated opposite of the waltz. Uh, hence why it's used when evil walks into the room, right? Mm. Anyway, yeah, that's so that's great. just, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, yeah it's, it's really remarkable. I mean, I, I, I want to emphasize that 
I mean, we just live in this strange century and this yeah. know, 21st century. I mean, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. I mean, we, we just need to, because I mean, for viewers who may find this controversial, you just need to take yourself out of the 20th century for one second and just mm-hmm. think about the first 19th century or even before. I mean, think yeah. of all the time before this and how, what was normal life like. Right. And what we're talking about is what was normal life like. This is what is normal. Even in the, I mean, the classical music and I mean, even polyphony that arises are mm. innovations, but they're really of the same nature as the they're organic prior. Yeah. Um, and so the, there's a reason why popular music changes genres every 10 years. Yes. Because it, it simply is not stable in its very essence of its very form of music because it's right. just constantly trying to provoke more emotion. And because emotion that can keep us with appetite is addictive in this disorderly mm-hmm. form, it constantly needs to one up the next addiction. So it gets the next addiction right. because otherwise people get bored. And so people mm-hmm. stop paying money for this. So they have right. to just keep on recycling and go into more and more and more. So this is, um, yeah, it's, it's I, I can, I mean, when I started, when I first started uh, taking away all music except for those three forms that we mentioned, which would I would just yeah. say sacred, classical, and, and traditional. sort of traditional folk. Yeah, and I and I do still. I mean, I listen to um, like like contemporary Christmas carol arrangements or, or things like. I mean, I yeah. think that there's there is um, new music coming out that's not. Like, um, you know, sure. the, the little guys, like people who are not very popular or whatever. I mean, <clears throat> a lot of that music is just sort of the traditional folk quality where, you know, we're just singing along a song and it's not like this big thing. Um, but when I, when I took away just sort of the major bigger stuff um, that I used to listen to, it was amazing what that impact it had on my spiritual life where I just, right. you know, working on praying and recollecting and being aware of God throughout the day and trying to be mindful of his presence, it just completely changed the game. It's a complete, like a black right. and white experience for me because I, it was just, wow, like, man, my, my mind is so clear. Suddenly I I'm not mm-hmm. filled with all these, uh, these addictive delights where I want to go back and listen to this song or that song or whatever. And just, I'm, I'm just able to, um, have, a, a lot better context within to try to just pray and recollect. So that, I mean, just from a subjective testimony standpoint, I mean, I would just appeal to the viewers to try this and see what impact it has on you. So what, what impact have you seen when you're doing excess 90 um, to, and, and I don't know when you sort of took away all music or whatever, but what well, have you seen? <clears throat> So like growing up, I was big into hip hop. Yeah, um, me too. Actually, I used to beatbox like with uh, with freestylers on stage and stuff. Like it was, <laughs> oh, yeah. it was pretty serious. I was All pretty right. good anyway. But uh, but I also actually, but it's funny enough, I went to a music school. My wife and I went to the same music school growing up. So I learned to play the viola. I was the bass and a baritone and a, like a chamber choir and things. So I also had that sort of sort of understanding of sacred music. And it's funny when I was like away from my faith and just living in mortal sin, you know, just, I always say I was just living like everybody else, which when in today's culture means you're living in mortal sin. So when I was just living like a regular university student, I remember, 
trying to, I was looking into sort of the, um, I wanted to be like, like a stoic, like a virtuous Marcus Aurelius kind of guy. So I remember thinking, okay, for some reason that means I need to listen to opera. <laughs> so I would, so I would try to, I tried, I tried to listen to opera while I was working out. It didn't work. <clears throat> Um, but I always did like opera as well. But anyway, when I sort of had a major conversion to the faith, um, just almost overnight, it was a major supernatural kind of thing with Our Lady. But but there was just certain music. I remember I was in Mexico at Guadalupe, and I talked. To, I looked at my friend and I said, I can, and it was pod, some podcasts too. I was listening to Joe Rogan and all these things, and I was like, I can't listen to that anymore. I just have to stop. And I got back. And I, and I put on a Joe Rogan podcast and I listened to it for like 20 minutes and it just sounded sour almost. I was like, man, can't do that anymore. And it was the same with music. So when I got back, I had been listening to a lot of rap and I just couldn't allow myself to hear certain words anymore. It was just like, nah, can't do it. It's not right. But then I started listening to like Christian rap um, because I wasn't all the way there. Like I was still had lots of work to do, but it, I still had enough of a heart change where I just couldn't do it anymore. But anyway, then fast forward, I was listening to Christian rap and there is objectively speaking, there is uh, it, as far as rap goes, there is in that genre, good, well-produced rap that is done by Christians where the lyrics are at least moral. But I started to realize that the appetite thing, I had no vocabulary for it, but I was like, okay, I'm listening to this song about Jesus but I'm still getting the same emotional highs and lows that are making me, they're playing with my up and down of my emotions, just like I did when I was listening to whatever pop song. It's like the lyrics are better, but it's still not all the way wholesome. So I just, over time, as I was praying more, et cetera, I just couldn't listen to it anymore. Um, and then it got to the point where it's just, turning on the radio is just like listening to cats being like beaten in a sack. I just can't even... I just hate the sound of it. Um, and uh, after a while, uh, when I started the Exodus 90 last year, I, didn't, I wasn't even really listening to music. We listened to a little bit of country, like when we're driving, um, but I, I couldn't really listen to anything. I just, so at that point, I actually took on the habit of listening to sacred music for the first time because I had sort of listened to no music for a while. And then I really started to fall in love with uh, sacred music. There's an epic talk that we should link in the notes. It's called, um, I think it's called the mass that saved polyphony. And it's by Dr. Andrew Childs. And he is a, it's from the Fatima center. It was a conference they did, but he is a um, PhD in some music thing. He used to be at Yale. Uh, he's like a professional tenor and things like that. He teaches at St. Mary's College in St. Mary's, Kansas, the Pius X College down there. Um, but it's interesting. He teaches sacred music and handles all these choirs, but he also teaches rhetoric. Um, it's just, he's very intellectual, but he goes through. So um, Palestrina was very, very close friends with St. Philip Neri. So uh, St. Philip Neri was at Palestrina's side as he died. So that's pretty cool, right? I, I mean, didn't know that. So talk about, <laughs> yeah, so talk about like, so, okay, the music was getting, and this is even in sacred music, music was getting so, uh, like polyphony in the mass. I, I can't remember which Pope it was, but he was actually debating canceling polyphony and like basically forbidding it forever in the mass and only having chant. 
because the polyphony was getting too complicated and too out of whack. So basically Palestrina had, uh, he was mandated with this mandate to, he basically had one chance to save polyphony. So this is where uh, he has his most famous piece, I think. It's, it's called the Misa Papale Marcelli. And um, look it up after people watch this. And you'll hear it. And it is, oh my goodness, it's achingly beautiful. And it's only about six voices. And I played it for my students one day. And I said, how many people do you think are singing here? And one kid goes, is that like 100 people? It's like, no, it's six. Anyway, he found this perfect way of, uh, of doing polyphony and it, it saved polyphony. So we have basically choral music at the mass because of Palestrina saving that. Anyway, Dr. Andrew Childs goes through all five pieces because you write five pieces for a traditional mass, all five pieces. And it's about an hour and a half talk and it's just wonderful. But yeah, sacred music is amazing. Yeah, that, that's and that's really where it really, really counts is in the holy sacrifice. Um, and, and it's, yeah, the funny part is, yeah, this has happened at least twice to my knowledge where the yeah. music in the Holy mass starts to become so concupiscible yes. that the church intervenes. And that happened in the 16th century. It also happened Pius the 10th when he did, uh, Trala Salusitudine, uh, 1907. And at that time there was a great deal of operatic, uh, theatrical type music that was being um, done in the mass, which he was trying yes. to reel in as well. And so, so that happened again, turn of the, to the, uh, the 20th century. And, and now we've had a, another revolution of the same character in the Holy mass. So that now in, yeah. in most Novus Ordo parishes, you have this totally concupiscible appetitive music from 1970 that is just entirely ever. emotional. It, it really, yeah. and even in the, you have it in the Nova Sordo, like the youth rock concert masses, yeah. it's just completely yeah. appetitive that has no place in the Holy Sacrifice. And so the Holy Sacrifice must have the intellective music, which is either a chant or polyphony or some form of that an intellective quality, because that is what uh, lifts our minds and hearts to God. That's what, um, stimulates our intellect the most so that we can, we can lift our minds to God and pray. So that, that's where it becomes most salient is in the Holy Sacrifice. And that's, and that's touchy because one of the things I want to point out again with, with yesterday's videos and today, I tr like meaning of Catholic, we're trying to as much as possible just pass down the faith yeah. and not my personal opinion, not Kennedy's personal opinion. But some of these things have so little authority like movies, yeah. movies are so new. There's so little yeah. in terms of doctors of the church who have commented and whatever. And so the authority by which we are saying these things about music is based mainly on tradition. And I think, you know, those two points that we were talking about where the church basically, because in that controversy over Palestrina, the church basically said, okay, you can have polyphony, but Palestrina is the standard. Like yes. you have to, everybody has to imitate the basic quality of Palestrina in order to be permitted in the mass. And then right. in the same way, Pius X, where he talks about it and says in, uh, I think it's in Trello Solicitudine, where he talks about the quality of the music. And he, he gives, yes. he gives uh, particular qualities and he says, this is what, this is the type of thing 
that the music would um, really be good. So, but in terms of the moral life where we're just talking about day to day, listening to music, those things are a lot less uh, authoritative. You know, we're not saying right. this based on, so, I mean, so take, take this for the authority that it is, you know, we're, we're trying right. our best to put, put forth, uh, the authority of the tradition in terms of music, the authority of the philosophers, um, yep. the authority of just longstanding custom and the wisdom in that, and also the personal experiences that we've had in terms of this music. And that's upon the authority on pod that this rests, you know, it's not a very authoritative, but take it for what it's worth. This is, I think a very important topic. Um, but that's the level of authority by which we, you know, pass this off. So, so wait, Wait, are, are you saying that when the Crusaders walked into battle, they weren't singing Gather Us In? Because that's crazy. I thought that was an ancient, uh, wonderful, sacred song. No. Yeah, we, we should like, uh, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Sanctum Crucem uh, Vinchet? I can't remember. There's this great Crusader song that I, I, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, the name is blanking with me, but I should put that in there because that's a great example of, sort of an irascible type song because it's clearly a battle song, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's, there is a, uh, a place for the very strongly irascible music, you know, and that was the battle drum yeah. type of thing. <laughs> of course there is. And uh, they, that's why, um, that's why, uh, what's it called? Militaries have always had uh, drums for marching with their soldiers. Right. They just realized that soldiers could mark, march longer and at a higher quality. Uh, and experience less fatigue if they had a certain drum beat going, right? right? But once again, it was the proper rhythm, but sped up. So it wasn't syncopetic rhythm that made them anxious. It was the proper rhythm of their, whatever their constitution as a human being, but it was just made faster so they could adapt to it, but still keep their continuity with like the order within, right? Um, and, uh, and that makes a huge difference. That's why uh, I'm a, I coach a lot of sports. And one thing I've realized is uh, sports psychology. And um, I've realized this, some of the music I just don't let my kids listen to before games because it's just disgusting. It's like they're just putting on whatever rap. But some of it, <clears throat> I'll be like, guys, that is going to burn you out, right? Um, and they don't understand why. I'm like, you're actually better off to have silence before the game then you are that because you're going to get all excited and angry and you're going to, and it's rugby. So you're going to want to go, you know, smash somebody to pieces and that's great, but you're going to burn out within the first 30 seconds or so of the game. Um, and even the music that you have there can affect how they perform. So of course it's going to affect our daily life. And also um, just we're talking about effeminacy. If you, if you are attached to anything that isn't useful, then you need to let that thing go. Like, if, if you are saying, well, listen, I, 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 I just love listening to the radio while I'm driving, whatever. Okay, but what are you listening to? Um, like, and if you don't turn it on, do you notice that there's a void? And do you feel like called to just turn on the dial and just keep doing it? If that's the case, you're just attached to something that's doing nothing for you. Like you're not going to be in your deathbed and saying, man, I just, I really listen. I really wish I listened to more top 40. Like it's a waste of time. You'll never remember it. It's dumb. It doesn't matter. And it could be thrown away in history. We would never care. Right? So if you're attached to something and it's not useful, that's a sign that you need to get rid of that effeminate quality. Yeah. Dom yeah. Scupoli says in the spiritual combat that the, the test for attachment <clears throat> is to take away that thing. And if you feel a vexation in your spirit, 
then you're attached yeah. to it. And that could even happen for spiritual things too. You could be misusing yep. spiritual things and you, for emotional attachments. So anyways, uh, we didn't really cover social media and video games. So we'll have to carry that on another uh, show because um, we got to wrap Spoiler it up. Spoiler so, video games are lame. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we'll, uh, we'll get we'll into that. that. Basically everything, we, we try to provide a framework here between eutropelia okay. and effeminacy to be able to um, interact with popular culture a, a great deal. I mean, the great deal of, of things can be used. Like, I mean, little house of the prayer or whatever, but even some of these, I mean, some video games I think can be recreation. Some are just sure. evil, whatever, but, um, but yeah, we'll have to go into that. But then social media is something that's specifically designed to be addictive. So that's the danger there. So, We'll have to cover that more in detail, but for now, uh, I invite everyone to like and subscribe to the channel, comment, tell us your feelings, your comments, your thoughts and opinions on this topic, um, your music tastes and your opinion about it on what uh, basis that is and everything. So we'll try to link everything we can in the, in the show notes, uh, all what we think is good quality music, um, talks and that nature. Um, Kennedy, anything you want to say? Yeah, just uh, check out um, crusadechannel.com. That's Mike Church's thing. Anyway, it's a blog, and I'm doing a series of articles there called uh, It's About Being a Soy Boy. So we're trying to take a little, you know, like soy is fake meat, you know, so it's like it imitates, it's not real. If you actually have an, an allergy to dairy and do drink soy, my apologies, but stop being so soy if you're offended by it. Um, so we have this uh, article up, this series up there where we're trying to go through taking a, a humorous look at, at what it means to be effeminate and how not be that way. And right now on Fatima Center, um, I have a series on St. Joseph, which is all about Catholic masculinity. And we should talk about that next time. Um, he's like the perfect model for, for being a man. And there's about nine parts so far that talk about how to be a man through the lens of St. Joseph using... Um, the names that are used to to call to, all, to call him in the litany of Saint Joseph. That's great. So yeah. Go. So yeah. yeah, we'll link everything for Kennedy's writings so that you can check take a look at that. Um, there's also a few pieces on meaning of Catholic dealing with masculinity in particular. Uh, no yeah. social media that we'll link those as well. So until until then, let's uh, let's pray for Catholic men of God to arise and be men yeah. and to fight for the church and to fight against this evil. And that's what we're all about. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, right. the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Amen.